Good evening and welcome to this evening's Meet the Artist interview presented by San Francisco Ballet Center for Dance Education. I'd also like to welcome our online listeners who are accessing this program through our website, sfballet.org. Today is March 25th, 2011. We are in the War Memorial Opera House before an evening performance of Alexandra Danilova and George Balanchine's charming full-length ballet, Coppelia. My name is Cecilia Beam. I'm the Human Resources Manager and Adult Education Coordinator for San Francisco Ballet. And it is my pleasure to interview San Francisco Ballet's 2011 visiting scholar, Doug Fullington. Mr. Fullington is a dance scholar, a music historian, and reader of Stepanov notation, which was used during the late 1800s in the Russian Imperial Theater. I would imagine very few people can claim that expertise. He has long been associated with Pacific Northwest Ballet and serves as education programs manager and assistant to the artistic director. So Doug has been here all week, has been giving um, many lectures and talks, and it's just been absolutely fabulous. Uh, he gave a very nice history of Coppelia on Wednesday night, which we'll touch on this evening. And then on Thursday, we were at the library, and um, Doug talked a lot about passing ballets from generation to generation, the Petipa Ballet specifically, which was a great talk. And then today, I thought it was really fun, um, Doug gave a nice talk to the ballet students. And he really, I think, drew them into looking at dance history in a whole new way by looking at pictures and really looking at the differences between how we would see somebody as a Coppelia today and a Coppelia um, 100 years ago. So um, thank you so much for being our scholar. I thought it was just a really fabulous week. Thank you. I've had a great time being here at San Francisco Ballet, and thank you, Cecilia, for all the great opportunities this week. Well, thank you. And um, we will talk about Coppelia, but before we go there, I wanted to start talking a little bit about how you became interested in dance history and how you came to Pacific Northwest Ballet. Well, my training is all in music. Uh, I grew up in a musical family. I took piano lessons from the age of seven, and piano was my instrument in college. I studied music, but then I uh, decided performance career wasn't for me, and I changed over to music history. But I'd always been interested in dance music, really programmatic dance music, music that tells a story. And I learned a lot of the ballet scores for the classical ballets uh, when I was a teenager. I spent a lot of time in the library looking at these scores. I suppose it was kind of odd at the time, but <clears throat> anyway, I thought they were really interesting. So I got to know, you know, Coppelia and Sylvia and Giselle and all the Tchaikovsky ballets. And uh, I went to the ballet from early on. My parents uh, took my brothers and me to the ballet and the symphony. They thought it was very important that we had that sort of uh, cultural education. And I'd always hoped that someday I'd have some sort of involvement with Pacific Northwest Ballet. And then in the mid-80s, I was given a book called Tchaikovsky's Ballets. It's by a professor at the University of Michigan named Roland John Wiley. And it's a great book that explains the original productions of Swan Lake and Sleeping Beauty and Nutcracker. And Wiley talked about this notation system in Russia that was based on musical notation. And there were examples 
in the back of the book and I looked at it and I thought, well, I read music, maybe this is a way that I can be involved in dance. And fortunately, the University of Washington had a translation of the guide or the key to this notation system that was published in 1899. And so I checked it out and started to try to teach myself this notation system. And so I kind of came to ballet backwards that way. But uh, that was my own sort of way of, of getting involved. And then when I was in grad school, I was working for the ballet as an accompanist in the school and then began to do some research projects for Kent Stoll and Francie Russell, who were the artistic directors there at PMB until 2005. And then uh, I was asked to be their assistant, and I just sort of uh, fell into a really great job. And now I'm uh, working for Peter Bowl, which is a real pleasure and uh, also managing all the audience education programs, which I love doing. I love talking about ballet and uh, writing about it, and it's been great to be involved, in particular through the notation system that I read and, and trying to resurrect some of the older ballets and, and find elements of them that may have gone missing over, over the centuries and being able to put a, put a few things back in and gain a fuller understanding of them. Uh, one of the things you mentioned this past week that really made my ears stand up because um, sometimes you wonder, you know, how can a dance historian interact with the art form as it is today uh, in a professional ballet company? And you talked about this project, um, this Giselle project. Uh, talk a little bit about that. I thought that was very interesting. Sure. Uh, Pacific Northwest Ballet does not have Giselle in its repertory and, and never has. And Peter Bull decided to add it to the repertory for the close of this season. It'll open in June. And uh, I um, was bold enough to suggest that perhaps uh, he take on the staging himself, utilizing some uh, early sources that I worked with and that one of my colleagues, whose name is Marion Smith, works with. Marion is a musicologist. She's a professor of music and dance at the University of Oregon in Eugene. And she really is the leading scholar uh, working on Giselle, particularly working with, with the French documents that uh, were made and relate so closely to the original Giselle back in the 1840s in Paris. And then I work with Russian documents that document Marius Petipa's version right around 1900. So I said to Peter Bull, you know, if we, if we took these together, I think we'd have enough information to offer you that you'd have a lot of choices in in uh, putting together a Giselle, and he decided that was a, a good idea. And so we're, we're putting together a new staging of Giselle as a real collaboration. We have a rehearsal score from 1842 that was used to annotate Giselle so it could be staged in St. Petersburg the year after its premiere in Paris, which is very useful. It gives us a really good snapshot of the action, the pantomime in Giselle very early on we have a new source, which is a notation of Giselle made around about 1868 in Paris, right around the time that Giselle was about to go out of repertory there. It wouldn't come back till 1924. And this source is just wonderful. It, it lays the story out just like a screenplay, uh, just like the script of a play with a lot of drawings to show you the blocking. Interestingly, this uh, score disappeared in the 1890s. That's the last that was heard of it and turned up in 2002 at an auction in Germany. A woman brought a box of books to sell and in this box was this uh, notation score of Giselle, just 
incredible how that can still happen. And it was published in 2008 by a museum, a library in, in Germany, so we have access to it. And then I have the Stepanov notations that were made uh, when Anna Pavlova took on the role of Giselle in 1903. Petipa was coaching her. He was 85 years old. And that represents his last production of, of Giselle. It's also wonderful to see, to look at the performance tradition of Giselle through the 20th century and see how uh, closely it does align with much that is in these early sources. It's been wonderful to sort of trace that and be able to go from one source to the next and try to identify when some changes came in, but more often than not appreciate what's been, what's been passed down. And so it's, it's been a wonderful project and uh, got a lot of work left, but uh, we'll premiere that in June in Seattle. Just to give us an idea, what would be something that you'd point to that would be um, a significant change from what you see in the notation versus what we might see on the stage today in a Giselle uh, production? Well, there, there are a couple things. One is the, uh, the density of information in the action scenes, the pantomime scenes, and the conversations back and forth between characters. Uh, there, these mime scenes as annotated in the 1840s and 60s are chock full of conversation back and forth very quickly. Uh, another very interesting thing is we see the character of Giselle a little bit differently than she is often portrayed today. She comes across in the early sources as very strong. Uh, she almost reminds me of a Swan Elda that you're going to see on stage tonight. Quite willful, ready to stand up to her mother. Uh, she'll stand up to her boyfriend and then it, it prepares her to stand up to Myrta, the Queen of the Willies, in the second act. We see uh, Hilarion's role a little bit differently. He becomes a narrator in the ballet, really. He addresses the audience just in, in a very similar way that you'll see Swanilda and Franz initially address us when they come on stage tonight and explain to us who they are and who the doll Coppelia is and what this dilemma is that they're in. Of course, Giselle's dilemma becomes a little bit more serious than Swanilda's, but uh, it's, it's a similar approach. We also have some wonderful scenes in the second act which uh, play the mortals off against the willies, an opening scene with hunters that uh, show us who, who uh, works for Hilarion and, and how they become lost in the forest, and a scene of villagers coming home from a festival being... Uh, really accosted by the willies and an old peasant man coming on and saying, it's, it's time to get out of here. Uh, they'll kill you, run away. So we're able to uh, put, put back some of these scenes that, that may have gone missing over the years and that's been a lot of fun. Oh, it sounds like it's gonna be a fabulous project. Well, let's um, turn to Coppelia because that's the performance we're gonna see tonight. Um, so tell us about the beginnings of Coppelia. Well, Coppelia was first presented in 1870 in Paris, and it really comes right at the very tail end of ballet's romantic era, which can claim Giselle as one of its greatest achievements, also La Sylphide. Of course, these were ballets from the 1830s and 40s. By the time 1870 came around, um, ballet was a little bit on a decline in Paris. A lot of the leading male dancers had left for Russia where the Tsar was just pouring as much money as he could into ballet. It was very lucrative. Petipa, of course, had left. Uh, Arthur San Leon, who would uh, initially choreograph. Uh, Coppelia was spending his time uh, splitting between Russia and Paris. But the ballet had a, it was a great success. It was one of the last great successes uh, for the Paris Ballet. And the original Swanilda was a 16-year-old Italian dancer 
named uh, Giuseppina Bozaki. She had a wonderful success in the role. Apparently the management felt they didn't have a ballerina uh, in, the, in the Paris Opera that could uh, pull the kind of box office they wanted. And so they began looking in the schools and they found uh, this 15-year-old dancer. And then when she was 16, she made her debut in the leading role and had great success. Unfortunately, she would uh, pass away on the morning of her 17th birthday from smallpox during the siege of Paris. So sort of unhappy circumstances surrounding the premiere of Coppelia, but it did stay in the repertory at Paris Opera and it very soon uh, reached 500 performances and it was the most often performed ballet in the repertory. It also very soon went to Russia because the Russians had their eye very closely on Paris. Uh, they liked all things Parisian and they liked to to uh, assimilate and sort of mimic it in their own culture. So in 1872, Coppelia was produced in Moscow, and then in 1884, Petipa produced his production in St. Petersburg. And we don't know how much of the Parisian production Petipa may have seen. He traveled there often. He really liked to keep up on the fashions and the styles, not only in ballet, but in other areas of culture as well. So he at least, I'm sure, had some information and maybe consulted with San Leon, who was also working in Russia, about the original choreography. But it is the Petipa production that really has served as the basis for the other productions in the West outside of Paris. So around the turn of the century, the Petipa production would have been uh, notated in the Stepanov notation system that, that Cecilia and I have mentioned. And then after the Russian Revolution, uh, Petipa's ballet master, Nikolai Sergeyev, uh, fled Russia but knowing he'd need to make a career for himself in the West, he took all the notations that he had with him, much to the chagrin these days of the Kirov Ballet. But nonetheless, he took them with him and began staging ballets in the West. He staged Giselle for Paris Opera Ballet in, in 1924. He staged quite a number in Latvia. And then in the 30s, he ended up in England where he met a woman named Nanette de Valois, who was running a company called the Vic Wells Ballet and he staged for her Coppelia and Giselle and Nutcracker, Swan Lake and Sleeping Beauty. And eventually that company became the Sadler's Wells Ballet and then the Queen uh, named the company the Royal Ballet. And so that served as their classical basis and other companies acquired Sergeyev's uh, staging as well, including the Ballet Russe de Monte Carlo, one of the offshoots of Diaghilev's famous Ballet Russe. They were a European company in the 30s but after World War II uh, they were on tour and many of them were not able to return to Europe and they became an American touring company and toured their productions throughout the United States and Coppelia was in the repertory there and their famous Swan Elda was Alexandra Danilova. Now Danilova, of course known for this role, had great comedic timing and talent and was a great actress uh, with, uh, and ballerina with lots of chic and style. After she retired, she eventually joined the faculty of Balanchine's School of American Ballet. And in 1974, Balanchine asked her to join him in staging Coppelia for the New York City Ballet. He decided the company needed another full-length work, and he often drew on ballets that he knew from his childhood in St. Petersburg. And together, he and Danilova staged the ballet for the company. She is responsible for most of the first and second act, drawing on her memories of her own performances and her childhood. Balanchine did re-choreograph the corps de ballet dances, the mazurka and the chardache in the first act. And Balanchine also choreographed new most of the third act as well. And you will see that he very ingeniously 
uh, created uh, corps de ballet roles for small girls, girls tonight from the San Francisco Ballet School, of whom you'll be very proud. Uh, 24 of them make up the uh, wonderful corps de ballet in the entertainment in the third act. And of course, uh, the first Franz in the Balanchine production was none other than Helgi Thomason, for whom Balanchine choreographed a wonderful uh, new solo in the first act, also to music by Delib, and then included for him in the third act the solo that he had choreographed for his Sylvia Potida. And then he also added music for a coda for Franz and Swanhilda, and so you'll just see wonderful dancing for the principal dancers tonight. This is, it's tough bravura dancing, but so exciting to watch the dancers uh, achieve it. It's, it's great stuff. Well, I have to take advantage of the fact that you're uh, a dance scholar and historian. Can you tell us a little bit how the different productions might look between the Imperial Russian production, uh, Ballet Russe de Monte Carlo, and the New York City Ballet, and maybe even our production? Sure, you know, in Russia, the company in St. Petersburg was, well, we can go back to, to France. Uh, the company would be, uh, quite a large company, but that said, not as many men on stage, and a lot of that was controlled by the audience. Uh, <clears throat> the audience was mostly a male audience in Paris at the time, and many were members of the influential Jockey Club. This was a, a, a fraternal organization, and the men in the Jockey Club were not interested in seeing men on stage, so even the first Franz was a woman, a travesty or a pants roll. Uh, and so there was no pas de deux, and there, wasn't, there weren't any lifts or partnering. But when the ballet went to Russia, uh, Petipa uh, worked on the third act and used some of the music for Apodida, for Franz, portrayed, played by a man, uh, with Swanilda, and that has become traditional today. The Russian companies were very large. They'd be 200 strong, so you'd have many, many dancers on stage, large corps de ballet, lots of villagers, uh, nearly always children from the Imperial Theater School involved. And when the ballet came west, uh, companies were smaller, particularly the English companies, and they played in smaller theaters that didn't have as, as large of a proscenium arch, and there was less room on stage. So oftentimes the ballets were a little bit truncated when it came to casting. During wartime, uh, most of the men were not available, having been drafted, and so parts of the ballet may have been re-choreographed for women only. But when Balanchine staged uh, Coppelia for New York City Ballet, the, the company was at full strength. They were performing in the New York State Theater at Lincoln Center. It was a very large company, and so he was able to field a full cast of men and women and also children from his School of American Ballet. So he was really able to, I think, realize the intentions of Petipa, and I, I'll bet the intentions of the original creators as well. I think he, he did everybody proud with that production. Um, now, we're co-producing this production with Pacific Northwest Ballet. Um, talk a little bit about that process. Well, Peter Bowl, uh, like Helgi Thomason, has always loved Balanchine's production of Coppelia. Franz was one of Peter's roles as well, and one of his favorite roles. And since he came to PNB in 2005 as artistic director, he has wanted to stage the ballet for the company. and. Uh, he also wanted to have the sets and costumes redesigned because he felt that would make the production a little bit unique for PNB. And then he approached uh, Helgi about co-producing with San Francisco Ballet. Not only are we uh, companies on the same coast, but of course Coppelia 
will have such special meaning for not only Helgi, but for all of you in the audience and for San Francisco because of his close association with the role. And so very happily, we have been able to co-produce the ballet. Uh, the costumes and sets were built in Seattle, but with a lot of input from the production staff here and from Helgi himself, our uh, designer is an Italian designer, Roberta Guidi de Bagno, who resides in Rome. She designed both the sets and the costumes, I think very beautifully. She familiarized herself with the Balanchine production so that she would know what the requirements of the choreography were, which can inform the costume design, and also the staging requirements, entrances and exits, and the key elements of the scenery and props and so forth, so that in her redesign, she would facilitate all the aspects required by the Balanchine production. And I think she did a beautiful job, and I think the production looks great in Seattle, and I think it looks great here in the War Memorial Opera House, and I'm sure we'll be seeing it travel back and forth between the companies for a number of years. It is a beautiful production. Gosh, we are just running through the time, and I do want to offer um, our audience an opportunity to ask some questions. Um, help me out by keeping them short, and we will repeat them. Why did they take bows at the end of the second act? I think primarily Dr. Coppelius. Um, his, his main acting is uh, completed by the second act. We're introduced to him in the first act, and uh, all of the dilemma is uh, reached at the end of the first act, and the, uh, but resolved mostly by the end of the second. So I think that offers us a, a particular time to acknowledge him, because in the third act, we'll only see him just at the beginning where he comes and demands some payment for, for uh, really his distress and, and some of the destruction in his shop. But really, uh, we see him most clearly and for the most amount of time in Act Two, and I think that's the reason for the bow. Is there a particular advantage to the Stepanov notation system? I think for classical ballet, it, it works quite well. Uh, if you were trying to uh, notate something in a more modern genre of movement, it, it would be more difficult. But it does work well for classical ballet movement, especially in the uh, sort of musically literal style that Petipal worked with. He liked dancers moving with the beat and to sort, sort of mirror the rhythm of the music. So the fact that the a musical notation system serves as the basis for the notation of the dance, I think those go hand in hand well. I think the question was, why hasn't Coppelia been performed until this week, and has it been performed by San Francisco Ballet in the past? Now, Cecilia, you can probably help me out here, but there, there was a production by the Christensen's, yes? Yes, the Christensen's had a production of Coppelia. I'm not 100% sure whether it was actually performed the full um, production here in San Francisco, but the Christensen's are very associated with Coppelia. In history books, you can see a lot of pictures of them in Coppelia. It's interesting with the Balanchine Coppelia, um, it was performed very briefly in Zurich when Patricia Neary was running the company there in the 1970s, but, but beyond that, no company has, has acquired the work other than uh, New York City Ballet, and you know, we're going on 30, nearly 40 years, but all of a sudden, uh, 
Pacific Northwest Ballet, San Francisco Ballet, Boston Ballet, and Dresden Semper Oper uh, have uh, acquired the ballet all within the span of about a year, making uh, Judith Fugate, the stager, very, very busy <laughs> running around and staging Balanchine's Coppelia. And it's interesting how that works. I see that in programming. And it's not that everyone's calling each other up and saying, okay, we're all gonna program this ballet, but we do sort of see these, these trends occur. And uh, Coppelia is one that all of a sudden has become quite popular. When did, uh, when did music from other ballets begin? When did interpolations begin in ballets? I think early on. Um, you know, in, in, in Paris, when ballet was trying to become independent of opera, you know, ballet was always sort of an adjunct to an opera evening, and people felt the ballet couldn't stand alone because it didn't have any words. Um, in those early ballets, familiar tunes from operas would be played during the ballet so that audiences would know what the emotional context was on stage and signs were used to tell the audience uh, what was going on. You'll see signs in Coppelia too. You'll see some banners in the first act. But then on up through say Petipa's time, a ballerina might want to dance a particular dance that she's had great success with and she would, she would bring that dance and, and put it into uh, ballet score. Uh, this is something Tchaikovsky was not keen on a ballerina wanted to dance a pas de deux by, with music by Minkus in Swan Lake in the 1870s in Moscow, and instead he said, you give me the music and I'll write you something that matches exactly so that you can do your choreography, but to my music. Great story. Another question, yes. Oh, that's such a good question. I'll try and give a succinct answer. The question is, seeing Coppelia last night, you felt that there were, it, it looked like a different pedipaw than the pedipaw of Swan Lake. And is, is that really a, an issue with pedipaw's output or a balancing influence? It's a little bit hard to answer, but I know that working with the Stepanov notations, say uh, there's a ballet called Daughter of Pharaoh from the 1860s. It wasn't notated until the early 1900s, but it's a lot, uh, more old-fashioned, if you will, in style than, say, Swan Lake from 1895 or Raimonda from 1898, which are much more sophisticated choreographically. So it seems to me that Petipa, although he did uh, make changes in ballets when he'd subsequently revived them, it seems as though he held true to a certain style for that particular piece. So I would not be surprised if this choreography by Petipa for Coppelia does have an older look or a look that seems more associated with the Romantic era. He, he did seem aware of those differences when you read some of his writings, even letters to the editor of newspapers when he'd try and explain something about a ballet. Um, but of course, Balanchine would be very aware of this too, of stylistic differences. And uh, so it's, that's a little hard to put a finger on, but I think Suffice it to say that Petipa was aware of differences and that his older ballets will look older 
than say something newer like Swan Lake from 95. Oh my goodness, we've completely run out of time, but uh, you've just been a really wonderful asset to our Visiting Scholar program. You can hear um, Doug's lectures up on the website. They'll be up shortly. So thank you again. And Thank you, what a pleasure. Uh, do enjoy the performance. Thank you. Thank you.